Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to Ask the Experts, brought to you by the Real Estate Forums. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me is Aaron Cameron. We are lenders with First National, as well as being co-hosts of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We have a returning guest today, but returning guest, I don't think does justice to how much Ray has contributed all year long in doing these with us, bringing us a ton of great data and uh, insight that we wouldn't have. I mean, there's no shortage of opinions in real estate, but Ray is a highly informed one. We're very glad to have him back. For anybody who doesn't know him, he's the Vice President, Data Operations and Data Solutions with Altus Group. Discussion today is going to revolve around the last few months of transactions in 2021, what the year looked like as a whole. We're going to start with a lot of macro trends. And so to set the, set the, the, the stage here, though, Ray does have a short slide presentation. He's going to walk us through that. And then the, you know, the discussion will begin in earnest. So Ray, I'm going to ask you now to, you know, to intro your, your slides and jump into it. Perfect. This is what we're sort of thinking at mid-year that we definitely knew that we were going to exceed the 2020 investment volume. It's a bit of a stretch, but it's no longer a stretch with respect to exceeding the 2019 investment volumes. So year-to-date, as of yesterday, that on a national basis, in 2019, we're at $52.2 And with two months left in the year, we're at close to about $56 billion. And a lot of the activity actually occurred, or the increased activity, places that you would normally expect investment volume to be quite different in Canada, beginning with Vancouver, Toronto. But the greater golden horseshoe is, I don't think it's that big of a surprise with respect to the greater Toronto area and the investment activity increase. But it, it's almost doubled to compare to 2019. And a large part of that, close to about $4 billion of activity, was basically your Hamilton, your Guelph, Cambridge, and Kitchener-Waterloo. So again, it's just that investors are looking for um, increase in opportunities as well as uh, perhaps higher returns and cap rates. But the other market that should exceed 2019 levels will be Montreal, especially the last couple of weeks with some large investment transactions. But if you go to the next slide, please. So this basically breaks down the comparison between 2019 versus 2021. And historically, office has always been either one, two, or three in the way of investment volume. And 2021, and this is indicative of what's the impact of the pandemic with office transactions dropping by about half. And there's still sort of a wait and see with what the impact will be on the office market with um, return to the office or work from home and the hybrid model. And what has really taken the spot is basically industrial and apartments from an income return standpoint. But when you look at the housing market, especially on the new home, residential land has always been a lot of activity. But look at that growth that has um, taken that, that place of the office void. And as well as not just residential, but ICI land as well. And what's interesting to point out on the slide when you look at the breakdown is retail. Despite all the discussion on retail with the evolution and the experience, demand for retail is still there. And it's only off by about 300 million compared to 
2019. And that's where we've seen a lot of sort of growth opportunities or redevelopment opportunities. So retail remains, especially with private developers, very active. And if we can turn to the last slide, please. This looks at the overall pricing, and this is not a surprise that we saw a lot of the adjustment on pricing on cap rates last year. And this year was sort of continuation of sort of flat cap rates with respect to office and retail, but continued downward pressure on industrial as well as multifamily. So for certain assets, we're still seeing some uh, uh, lower cap rates, but especially in the, in the secondary tertiary markets. That's where we're still seeing slightly higher cap rates. But this just shows you, based on the investment volume and the type of product that is being transacted, that there's still a sexual demand for um, investment property, and there doesn't seem to be any shortage of buyers in the marketplace. So, Adam, I'll turn it back to you. That's a bit of a snapshot of what we're seeing across the country. Well, you know, I'll take this one, Ray. And maybe just to kind of summarize what we focus on the on the slides that you put up. I mean, that first slide, not surprising, I guess, that investments are up kind of back to 2019 levels, obviously with the blip in 2020. You know, we hate doing this, but there is a COVID story. We can't ignore it, right? It obviously had an impact in just decision-making throughout 2020, naturally. And then now that we're through 2021, vaccination levels are coming up. Legislation is allowing quite a bit of return to normalcy back to office is becoming a thing. And so I think, as you're kind of pointing out, there's still some hesitancy in the office sector, but that's been clearly gobbled up by a whole bunch of other sort of investment strategies. Maybe we just start really macro, right? So they've had that that office investment historically, as you said, it was kind of one, two, or three. It's now, I don't know, I, I couldn't count eighth or ninth, really, or whatever in the asset classes. It looked like land was the biggest benefactor, right, of that pivot of capital. What was the kind of driving forces sort of nationally behind that? Well, when you look at returns, depending on the asset or the core asset, is actually you would get higher returns by developing or building something from scratch. And what we're seeing is the increase in residential land, but it's where, right? And the GTA is heading further um, north especially east and west, and some of those tertiary markets are benefiting. Whereas a lot of the the retail, I mean, sort of the office industrial, typically it has been in the GTA. Now we're seeing some expansion in that area. So with land, again, it's that comment that they're not making any more land. So one, they need to find it, and that's further of the outskirts. But we're also seeing redevelopment in some of the older office buildings or some of the older industrial from redevelopment play, just tearing it down and building something that either adds to the use, either retail or or multifamily. But it's interesting with some of the, the buyers in these marketplaces. And we're, I think we said this a number of times, when you look at some of the cap rates that are being paid for some of the older or the class B product, it's not reflective of the current use. It's reflective of the future use three to five years out. So the play for a few of these investors is to get the short-term income flow to reposition the property for redeveloping the higher return and higher densities down the road. Right. So the land part is a little bit deceiving that most of it is, is raw land, but part of it is redevelopment that the owner has no intention of using that property for industrial in three years out. 
So, Ray, these numbers really show that we're back on track. You know, and real estate was doing very well pre-COVID, doing very well again. And I want to zero in on uh, some terminology that Aaron used. He referred to 2020 as a blip, which uh, you know, it was kind of flippant given that 15 months ago, we thought that uh, the whole world might be collapsing on itself. But I take it as a sign of positive growth. We can now use that those terms of references to 2020. But a little farther back, 2008, same idea then. It really looked like you know the Canadian real estate market might not fare so well. And compared to the U.S., we did very well. You look back to the 90s to see a time when real estate really got uh, steamrolled and a downturn. Is there anything you see in the numbers that we would be concerned about risks, another bubble forming? another event that, that would cause the kind of stability that we haven't seen in so many years and has been tested multiple times now without completely devastating values? Well, in the early 1990s and to a certain extent, 2007, 2008 is your financial crisis. So the challenge was whether or not some of these institutions and banks were, were actually going to survive. I think right now there's a lot of capital that's chasing very few assets, that there could be a little bit of overpaying for certain assets, but given time, it may not be a bad play. But again, it's given time in the marketplace. And given the economic news with regards to employment growth, I know inflation is a concern, and the whole thing this about the um, logistics and supply chain uh, disruptions that we're going to see over the next few months, and probably into next year until certain shortages, and as well as the key thing with, with labor, Right now, we're still going through sort of a, an adjustment with COVID because a lot of people that were working with, especially with um, the lower end paying positions, took the time to upgrade their job skills. So we're having sort of employment voids, especially with truck drivers, and we're placing that, that area, but as well as uh, especially the, the service sector with um, restaurants. So when you look at that, there could be something down there that we don't anticipate. We didn't anticipate lumber prices this year. And, and we know that construction costs are still going to go up. And they're probably going to go up slightly above inflation, just we factor in labor and time for development and shortage of products. But right now, I don't think there's anything that will knock the economy or knock the real estate market off, maybe in certain niche markets or areas. But overall, I just don't see anything yet. But I see a bit of a slowdown a little bit as we go through some of the labor and, and cost issues, especially logistics. But then combine that with return to work and more movement within the economy and you know potentially that they kind of balance themselves out, not to mention immigration and just the impact that has students coming back, presumably being closer to their schools rather than you know living abroad, meaning you know being students from home, et cetera. So there's, I mean, to your point, it's kind of still too early to tell, but it feels like there's a lot of positive forces, I guess, is the easy way to put it. Fantastic point about immigration. We're expecting it to double in the next three years. And this recovery, especially on the residential side, happened without that amount of immigration. And as well as when people emigrate into um, Canada or in countries, the first thing they do is rent, right? So without that, that churn that you know, after two or three years of renting, then you buy an apartment or buy your, your first house. We had that bit of an increase in um, multifamily vacancy rates sort of early on in the pandemic as people moved back home. But the numbers are recovering, and especially with the rent escalations, right? That's all occurred without that element of immigration. So factor in immigration going to next year, and what you said about the students coming back, 
it'll be really interesting to see this economy and hopefully with immigration will solve us some of the labor shortages as well in, in a few of the those sectors. And then speaks well for the investment in apartments. And we'll we'll avoid any conversations around inclusionary zoning or yeah. the impacts that may have. We'll just save that. Actually, shameless plug. If you're curious, there's a new commercial real estate podcast episode coming out, I think, next week that will cover that. If you're curious more about what the potential ramifications are. All right, well, let's back up quickly. We're talking macro. And I'm going back to your slides a little bit, Ray. You talked about retail. You identified retail being kind of a surprise given the the real sort of negative narrative around, you know, retail is dead for quite a bit of COVID and, you know, this big transition to buying online. And yet we've had multiple conversations with you and other guests about that's just ultimately not true. It's evolving. It's just transitioning. However, and I've asked you this question before, but, you know, it's been six months and things change. When does a retail acquisition just become a land acquisition, right? Like one of the benefits of retail is that you get a, quite a bit of land from a you know, parking area perspective. And presumably in your numbers, like you can't really capture that because it may be a five or a 10 year future plan or assumption when they're making that acquisition. But you get a sense that there's quite a bit of that. The retail is really just really, really well located dirt, right? Absolutely. And we're, we've been seeing that actually the last few years, not just during the pandemic. And we saw it with the major malls across the country, with New York Dales or not, that there were submittals or applications to allow for apartments or condominiums. And RealCan has done that for some with some of their properties with excess land. And I think that's just a natural progression of how people want to interact with convenience. And I think this whole pandemic thing is all about convenience of having things right there instead of waiting two or three days or five miles out or even, you know, I'm surprised with the number of costs being built and you still have that level of demand. But for retail, again, retailers want the brick and mortar because typically if you look at the average buy, people typically buy more when they're in the store compared to online. If you're online, you're looking for one specific thing and you're off. Whereas when you're in a retail store, you're focusing on one, but you pick up five or six different items that you wouldn't have thought of if you were just sitting in front of your laptop. So I think there's a need for that component of it and there's that social aspect of it. So I think we're still going to see a pivot and you know, it's not, e-commerce will continue to grow. The only thing that I think may be down a little bit, maybe grocery, online shopping that is left in the way of increased activity since the pandemic with people not wanting to go in stores. But I think that will still continue, but probably not at the same growth rate as we've seen in, in the past 18 months. Yeah, I can confirm I don't want to go to in stores now, but I didn't prior to COVID either. So I would have been an earlier adopter of the full Amazon lifestyle. <laughs> the start of the year, we were having conversations just like this in this format where we're you know, looking at recent trends. And something that was identified early on is a lot of pressure for institutions to, to get money out. You know, last year, we didn't see a lot of investment, investment activity until the fourth quarter of the year. Has that pressure maintained are institutions still under this backlog of money that they want to deploy? I know that you were recently traveling around the country, so maybe you had some of these conversations face-to-face. What are you, are you sensing in regards to this big wall of capital just ready to jump well, in? And let me, let me add to that, because I was thinking the same thing, Ray, before we answer. I mean, you looked at your first slide, 2021 is up over 2019. But the narrative we've been talking about forever has been there's just so much savings and capital coming. Under that 
design or, or perception is 2021's kind of surprisingly low. Like, wouldn't it have been much, much greater than 2019? Or does that just mean that 2022, we're, we should expect significant growth and just investment in real estate across the country? I agree with you. I think there should be a lot more transaction in the marketplace, but it's a shortage of product that's just not there. And you're seeing a lot more creative transactions in the marketplace, especially with the purchase of some of the portfolio activity is definitely up to uh, from last year. But 2020, it was, it's like somebody getting hit in the head with concussion. You had that two or three month days. And then when people were sort of more comfortable with the stability and the direction of the market, they got back in in fourth quarter. So to a certain extent, I think there should have been a little bit more activity because it was based on the delayed or postponed activity in 2020. And to a certain extent, we're seeing that on the office leasing market as well. The leasing activity is up compared to last year, but it was that hesitation and postponement of a real estate decision. So it'd be interesting to look at 2022, whether or not that volume will actually continue and the actual whether or not that product will be there to, to support it. And uh, I would be a little bit surprised if we exceed what we're seeing this year for next year and whether or not people take a bit of a pause. But it's, to Adam's point, there is always that pressure. There's allocated funds and, and you'd be able to find suitable product with certain stability with some of these investors continues to be a challenge. That's why places like Hamilton, whereby you know, 10 years ago, people moved out there because of housing affordability. But now you're seeing some growth in some of the industries and especially on new companies on the tech side, right? And you're seeing that, that regular growth. And again, when you get that type of growth in those type of markets, and Kitchen Waterloo is another good example of that, certain extent, Kelowna and outside of Vancouver, but you see more sort of investment products sort of hit the market. And whether or not the challenge is whether or not is it more target at the private side or whether or not it's big enough for institutions and some of the pension funds to get their arms around. So that's the challenges with the second and tertiary markets. The product is just not big enough for them to be able to, to make a meaningful investment into that product. So we're going to get into more transactions and get a little bit more micro across the country and just talk about different transactions that have occurred. One last question from a macro perspective, Ray, and this is the hardest question I've ever asked you. Ah, you ready? Sure. <laughs> so, you know, you're talking about, we've talked about this wall of capital and how, you know, there's been an incredible push to get money out the door. But then you talk about how there's just really ultimately not a ton of products available, right, to meet the demands of that capital. Yet one of your slides just kind of showed a flat cap rate line. Like it didn't really seem to be declining. If, if it's declining, it's, it's very marginal. So if we've got a, a ton of supply of capital and a decrease of demand or decrease of supply of product, yet cap rates are staying relatively flat. Yeah. Does that mean we're at kind of max valuation? Does that mean we're not really going to see a, a continuing increase in valuations, at least from a capitalization rate perspective? See, the challenge we have is, is the product that are transacting that they're not all core assets. So if we saw a lot more of those type of transactions, we would probably see the cap rates come down. And you are seeing the cap rate continue to fall for um, industrial. And your multifamily residential, between 2 and 3%, I'm not really sure how much lower they can get. So you're seeing a flatness in that area. But on the retail side and the office side, you saw those cap rate increases last year. And you saw that there was more concern for those type of assets. But because of there's some concerns, 
those are transactions that are happening because the other issue that you have is the bid-ask gap between a purchaser and vendor. So vendors, to move certain products, have to sort of increase some of their cap rates depending on, on certain locations. And some of those transactions weren't happening the last 18 months because of that price expectation. So now there's a little bit more of an understanding from both the purchaser standpoint on what type of turns and potential turns down the road, and as well as from uh, especially the owners that are trying to right-size or reposition their, their real estate strategy, that they have to take a slightly sort of higher cap rate to move certain products. So that's what we're seeing. So that's why we're not seeing a big swing on um, this cap rate chart. And this cap rate chart is sort of a combination of our survey of our investors and as well as what's happening in the marketplace. But if you look at the actual cap rates as it turns out, you couldn't have a really linear line because every quarter it'll just jump around based on the, the transaction. So this is a little bit smoother, but sort of explains some of the, the gap, but certainly key deals that cap rates are still moving down for industrial and, and multifamily, especially anything with potential returns three to five years out with either rent increases or expiries. And of course, we have not mentioned is interest rates are having upward pressure on non-cap rates. So there is push-pull effect on where they go, but we won't jump into that. I think we've got uh, some transactions to look at. There's a couple of really sizable ones in Q3 that we're going to go over. The first one I want to ask you about, Ray, is Steel's Technology Campus. This is in North York, just above Toronto. Maybe, Ray, you can do the highlights on it. But if you can comment on the cap rate, because I think that a, a 635 cap seems wide for an asset like this, but you do it better than I would. So if you can illuminate, please. It's a great asset because from a power redundancy part, it's off the two major streets in um, North York and Scarborough. So from a data center standpoint, redundancy of power, it's... It's a fantastic asset. And what's great about this is the excess land. So not only does it have an office component, but it's just built up some, some retail. And the 6.35 cap rate, it's maybe reasonable for that note just because it's not really, it's a little bit of industrial, a little bit of office, but it's a great asset. And you also have IBM and a few other tenants in that marketplace. But I thought that the cap rate should have been maybe a little bit lower than what we saw. But again, I sort of understand the numbers based on the potential of that site. Let's just stick with the GTA while we go through this and we'll move kind of across the country. You know, the next one's actually, I think the biggest, Ray, of the year, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just the artist REIT industrial transaction, 27 properties for basically three quarters of a billion dollars. It's really not surprising. I think the purchase price, I think it ended up 296 per square foot over 2.5 million square feet, if I'm reading this right. And again, just given the attraction to industrial, not surprising that my understanding of the acquisition is it's older stock industrial. Like this is not new build stuff. Yeah, it was quoted as a sub three cap rate. And for to acquire 27 assets at two point, close to 2.5 million square feet, it's hard to do. Right. So there's a premium that's attached that somebody's done this work for you and just makes a package to you. And that justifies lower cap rates. But even the older industrial product, uh, especially with based on its location, are still in demand. When you look at the overall availability rate in the GTA at less than 1.2%. So anything like this, even though that there's older stock, will have 
uh, rent increases, and again, down the road for potential redevelopment for the older stock. But again, I wasn't surprised with um, what this property sold at just because of this concentration of assets, and it would take quite a bit, would cost a lot more, a lot more time to uh, accumulate these number of industrial properties, especially in the GTA. Well, then for that premium paid for, as you said, the scale or the immediate scale of the portfolio, what kind of a premium do you think you would see there? If these were traded individually for one-off transactions, how many beeps difference in the cap rate do you think you'd see? Depending on the, the building itself, anywhere from 35 to about 45 5%. Again, depending on where the asset is located. So with this type of portfolio that you would pick up a number of stars and then you would also pick up a number of medium performers. And for certain sort of portfolios, the strategy is to try to lump the two, some of the more of your troubled assets to mix them with your star assets to get a half decent overall return on the portfolio. The next one we want to look at is uh, two towers that Dream bought. Two towers doesn't sound like a lot, but it does get to 841 units in a purchase price, I think north of north of $300 million per unit, 408 pretty amazing. I mean, it doesn't seem like a, that long ago that purchase prices north of 300 were kind of eye-raising and you know, here we are. And the other uh, one notable item about this transaction is there was a contribution from uh, Dream Impact Trust, which is a, a fund designed for social good. And it did include an injection of about $30 million from Fairfax Financial, which of course is uh, run by Prem Watson, who's known as Canada's Warren Buffett. So it is interesting to see him in that space. But uh, what can you share with us about this transaction? Well, again, it's a great asset and it just with the demand for housing and um, on the multifamily side and be able to acquire these type of assets. And again, it's a real safe bet with these properties. And it goes back to the larger chart with what is being in demand, either looking at sort of is probably a lower cap rate, but it's like clipping and bond. It's, it's stable and you're not going to see much movement in, on the income side. If anything, um, with uh, gradual increases. So to acquire this type of asset with sustainable and stable returns, it's great. The challenge with these assets, especially with the transactions that we're seeing, is that there's really not any sort of negative news in the way of transactions. And it's interesting with some of the purchasers and why they're purchasing certain assets. Then one side is trying to take a profit or that they realize the, the gains or the expectation. The other two sort of expecting further growth or at least longer term growth for the actual asset. So I, I was trying to look at some of the assets whereby it's a, it's a little bit more hair on it. But so far, what we've seen has been a very good play with for both the seller and the buyer. And so far, we really haven't seen any type of distress or potential distress, even on the office side for um, investment properties. You know, what's interesting about that that one, one of the apartment towers, actually the one that's 472 units was built in 1974 versus the other one is effectively new, built in the last couple of years. So it was north of 400K per unit on the acquisition. That's probably split up or bifurcated, you know, pretty heavily towards the new asset or the old asset. So interesting just to know kind of how they did that. And I'm, I'm assuming it's probably more like, 550 or 600 for the new asset and, and lower for the older asset, just based on my general understanding of where apartment rents are. But it nevertheless, just to, to your point, speaks to the volume, speaks to the interest in apartments and industrial. You know, the last asset in the sort of the GTA Ontario 
area is a land acquisition in Milton. And this is back to the previous conversation, Ray, about the demand for land and, and apartments, or sorry, <laughs> and residential. Maybe let's take this macro again. I know we're talking about transactions, but just you and I had this conversation before we went live here about trends and that move out of the city because of COVID and people getting away from city cores. And is that long-term or short-term? And so, I mean, this particular asset is, is just land in Milton, I mean, I think the thing that pops out at me is purchased for $15.8 million, call it $16 million in 2015, sold six years later for $165 million. So not a bad flip for the, yeah. for the, for the vendor. But again, is, is that demand consistent? Like, I don't know, I'm asking you a question that you don't have statistics to support, but what's your instinct? Like, do you think it's kind of depends or do you see that we're going to get back into normal and there's going to be a crush back towards urban centers and uh, that potentially these land plays are a little bit stretched? Not for Milton. Based on the infrastructure that's built and the residential growth in that area, it's interesting with the actual purchaser, Anatolia Tile Corp, that thinking is that it's going to be used for industrial uses. For that type of price, it'd be interesting to see whether or not they're going to use that site more efficiently for their own needs because I'm trying to figure out from an industrial standpoint how you sort of make that uh, make sense out of it based on what you have to either sell it or rent the space at. But at the same time, we are seeing rents for e-commerce space at $20, $25 and exceeding definitely B and C um, office rents in, in the suburbs. So, It'd be interesting to see where this development goes down the road. But with Milton, it's that urban envelope that it's slowly expanding. So I wouldn't classify Milton as sort of a, a real outline area just because of, especially with the type of use. So $165 million is, again, is quite the return based on what was originally purchased there. But interesting to see the, the financials and the numbers down the road. And given the purchaser is sort of industrial and that it's, I guess, I'm assuming it's zoned employment land, you don't think it's a conversion to residential? It's I, tough to do, yeah, I know, right? I, I'm kind of leaning that way just because of the price point. But the way industrial has gone the last number of years, especially with the type of development and the type of sales that we're seeing in some of the outlying areas, because we talked about this on, on the previous call, how some of the, like Amazon's building their first warehouse in London. And now we're seeing a lot more activity for industrial along that 401 corridor. And again, it's one based on land values, two, you know, they're finding labor. And plus, with the increase of technologies and efficiencies, they can function more without as many employees as compared to when they're in Toronto. So I think we're going to see more of a shift that way. But industrial shouldn't really surprise us where pricing is heading just because the sheer demand for this product and owners, especially owners that of um, industrial product in Bonn or the city proper that have been operating as companies or manufacturing has have done amazingly well, right? So instead of making a profit and selling their businesses, it's, it's the real estate that is the key. And I guess that goes the same for um, for sort of car dealerships in the past, that the real value is in the real estate, not selling the business down the road. Yeah, Adam, I know you want to go next, but I mean, just to finish off, because I'm looking at some of these numbers, and just so we can do some apples to apples for those that are sort of paying attention, it's a 198 and a half acre site, $165 million purchase. So 
really rough math just in my head, that's what, 800 per acre, right? That seems really, really high for industrial, isn't it? Yeah, you know what? Not really. Again, you're looking at sort of Mark on Richmond Hill, and you're you're north of that. And granted, that's a little bit closer compared to Milton, but no, it's not unreasonable. That's kind of funny to say because I remember when it was, a, it was a huge deal when it was a industrial land was at 1.2 million acre, and that was based on a potential office flex use. So this number is the big thing is the size, close to 200 acres on that price. Right. Otherwise, I think if you parcel this thing out, I think the average price would have been a little bit higher. Yeah, it's definitely a testament to industrial land that this is even a debate amongst us that you're wondering about the price. Could that be equated to unzoned residential or is it industrial? Because five years ago, it would be made abundantly clear that that's what the pricing was structured around versus industrial. So I guess this is a, a good thing for industrial land that we're even having this debate right now. We do have um, a little bit more time left. So I want to jump to Montreal. This is a center carnival. I, I won't attempt the French accent, and I do apologize for anybody who could uh, do it properly, but uh, this is in La Salle. And this was a transaction. It is currently an open-air mall. It's going to be redeveloped into transit-oriented mixed-use development. So this relates to a question posed earlier by Aaron about you know how often is retail just really a, a land deal with some holding income for another use. And this would be the perfect example, you know, and the pricing would indicate it. But Ray, do you want to walk us through this transaction? Well, again, this goes back to that same example with just having some income in place as, as holding as um, they work through the municipalities and the planning with um, higher and better use down the road. And this is causing that increase in or uh, retail uh, volume to maintain its level. So anytime there's a potential redevelopment for um, definitely higher return compared to the existing use, that's what's driving these transactions right now. Anything with a little bit of hair on it, anything that uh, can have a stronger return in the next three to five years, or in this case, probably would be a little bit shorter than that. But there's a lot of demand for this just because of where the cap rates are for some of these core assets that... You can't get, um, you know, it's expensive and you might as well look at higher returns by sort of creating your own real estate. Well, Ray, we've only got you know, six, maybe a couple more minutes than that left. And we've still got a number of transactions that we had kind of prepped. Why don't you pick the one that you want to go to next that you think has got the best discussion points around it? You know, it's, it's the office transactions in downtown Montreal, and we've seen a few of them. I apologize for the pronunciation of this. is the Chateau... Um, Barovage and transacted for $45 million and it's acquired by a private investor. And it's, uh, oh, sorry, this was a, a three-senior um, residence, 9, 12, and, and 14 stories. But it sort of gets into um, the demand on, on anything on type of returns. But what I wanted to look at was 1,000 de la Gachiteri. It's acquired by joint venture with um, Group Mosh and, and Group Petro. And we don't have the the selling price on this thing, but the assessment of uh, this property was uh, $456 million, and it's a 51-story Class A building downtown. And it shows you that there are still people that are willing to step up for these type of office assets and that have confidence in the return. But there's also on the vendor side that have changed their either realized the value on this and that have exited. And this, this property has a little bit more hair on as well because it's actually a land lease. So the land lease had to be renegotiated before the, the sale of this property. 
But that gives you sort of a semblance of demand for office assets in the marketplace. And there's been a couple more transactions that have taken place, especially the the old uh, train station go begired by allied properties or the REIT. Again, is that confidence in the urban marketplace and into the downtown. So a lot of activity or a lot of things we've been hearing have been mainly about people leaving the downtown or what happened to the office market market. But I think there's still that confidence and belief that downtown will return, but it's just going to take a little bit more time. Well, there's kind of two stories there before we wrap. You know, there's residential land growth, right? Investment in land growth outside of the major urban centers. And then just based on what we're seeing in the Montreal in the fourth quarter here, there's some increased appetite for downtown core office, both of which have sort of an underlying COVID story. Can both be sound investments? Can they coexist? Is hoping that there's going to be a further sort of expansion of the urban, as you call it, the urban envelope as a result of sort of separation and distancing? Or is there going to be a reflux or a relapse back to more core-centric pulses within sort of the urban area? You know, I think because of the demographics, I think it's, it's going to be a continuation. And especially when you look at affordability, housing affordability. And I don't think there's going to be a hollowing out of the urban areas. And so far, we haven't seen that based on some of the investment plays, especially with the apartment um, condo sales in uh, the urban markets, and especially Montreal has also seen big increases in, in prices as well as development in that area and all in the urban area. So unless we're missing something in the stats or there's something there that's unforeseen to cause that change, I see that because the demographics get in order and people having having kids, uh, you're going to have sort of a combination balance of further expansion outside of the urban areas. But I think especially with, with the amenities that the downtown offers, as well as public transportation and easier access, I think they're both at play. So at this point, it's sort of a wait and see, but there's really nothing there that signals us going to go one drastic way, one direction or the other. Unfortunately, you know, not a ton of answers, more questions than answers right now, right, Ray? But I think that's just the reality of a real estate community or real estate industry that, that takes time for these things to play themselves out in this sort of a macroeconomic context. We are out of time. So again, Ray, great conversation. Uh, love having you on. Really, really informative. Thanks for joining and see you next time. Welcome to the CRE Podcast after show where Aaron and I discuss the events that just happened. Ray Wong, you know, all, always great. His, the quality of his data is unbelievable. The way he can piece together to, you know, more general practitioners like us, is, you know, is fantastic. There was a couple of things that was said that, you know, I kind of wanted to highlight. Everybody is chasing higher yield. But as a counterpoint to that, you know, people buying trophy assets in downtown Toronto, in downtown Vancouver, it can't be a yield-based decision. I can't imagine that with the cap rates being so compressed, yes, you're going to see, you know, elevated appreciation over time and the durability of the cash flow is, you know, highly valuable. But if it's just purely an IRR calculation, if you're dropping $100 million into trophy assets in downtown cores, you know, maybe I'm wrong on this, but it can't be just a purely yield-based decision. It's got to be preservation of capital or... Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's got to be... There's there's a risk-adjusted you know, component to those formulas, right? So if they're buying that at Class A downtown core, you're, just, you're assuming it's more likely than not that that 
investment doesn't suffer a disconnect or a, a disruption in the cap over time, particularly if you're a long-term hold, you know, like in the next 30, 40 years, depending on what horizon you're using, there are going to be more economic catastrophes. There's going to be another pandemic, sorry. Like something's going to happen that's going to disrupt cash flow. And I guess if you're thinking about it that way, those core, core assets just don't have that same disruption. And therefore, I'll take a 6% or 8% return than a 10 or a 12% return or whatever it is. I'm making up the numbers. I was going to say those returns actually sound pretty attractive. We should uh, we should talk afterwards about what you're seeing it. Those are levered returns, Adam. Levered okay. returns. Yeah. yeah. Montreal. That Montreal is definitely worth highlighting again. The idea that it's caught on fire has you know been prevalent since at least 2019. But if nothing else, is a you know another metric of of how attractive that market is. We didn't get to all the transactions in that in the, the hour we had, but the full sheet that race sent over. There was a lot of chunky, you know, institutionally backed transactions taking place in the Montreal market. If we got to all of them, it would have been at least half of the, you know, half the discussion or more. So not, you no, know, not that uh, this is news to to anybody, but I think that Montreal is going to continue to be more and more a part of the conversation, and it really make that the acronym stick. You know, the MTV Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver really stick as the three markets that you got to pay attention to in this country. It is too bad because I, I wish Ray was here. We could finish the conversation because we had planned on taking the recent, very recent office activity in Montreal and then discussing, you know, philosophically about whether that's the beginning of of a resurgence of that asset class. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, you, you didn't unfortunately get to see the slides, but one of the main slides he showed was just two pie graphs that just showed a distribution of investment in asset classes year over year. I think it was 2019 and 2021. And they basically looked the same, except for the blue pie was the office pie was a third the size in 2021 as it was in 2019. And that was just a very, very easily visual demonstration that office investment in the marketplace had shrunk dramatically. Yet, total investment in, in real estate around the country has increased year over year. And so obviously, office is the biggest loser as it stands today. And then if you had to look much closer, you could see that ICI land had grown, which we did talk about. Then, however, if you look at sort of Q4 transactions, we're only in November November 9th. There's some theory that office is coming back and that people are now going, okay, wait a minute, like pandemic's going away, vaccination arising, companies are sort of getting back to, no, 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 office engagement, office collaboration, culture is very critical to the success of our business. And so office use is actually coming back. We didn't talk about sublet rates, but I suspect those sublet rates are starting to decline. And they, so, yeah, past conversations, they were shrinking. They were shrinking, right? Yeah, of course, that would make perfect sense. So you have some early, early signs that office investments coming back, starting in Montreal. And, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't have the numbers, but I would bet that, you know, sort, we talked to Ray in Q1, and all of a sudden, we're going to see some transactions in other major centers of office where that capital is coming back, trying to buy something before you know office rents continue to rise like they were pre-pandemic, right? Like we were hearing 50, 60, 70, 80 bucks per square foot in the office space. I think, I don't know what the number is today, but it's probably 30 or 40 for new space. So maybe there's a, there's a value add play if you get in early before, uh, before you know, we get back to where we were. Well, the pass around the hat because buying offices uh, is not is not cheap. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, 
<laughs> well, the last time we talked about the RBC building, I mean, I, we should have probably asked him for an update given we were kind of there. Clearly hasn't closed yet. It's still listed. I don't know what the closing date is. You know, he probably doesn't know either, but that will be an interesting sign. Because right? remember on the previous interview with Ray, we talked about it, is could it breach a billion? It was, you know, typical researcher, unwilling to commit. <laughs> <laughs> but then somebody in the chat said, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll go more than a billion. And it'll be interesting. Like if it's a billion three, clearly, you know, there's, we're seeing a significant increase in demand for that space above and beyond what sort of the, the data would have suggested just, you know, six months prior. My other big takeaway from the conversation, and I'll preface it by saying, if you thought that my insight that Montreal's on fire was blatantly obvious, the next one will probably <laughs> ring <laughs> true in the same vein. But uh, retail is not dead. Don't believe the hype. Retail <laughs> is not dead. You know, backed up by raised data. It's not just me me saying that. Uh, I, uh, retail is just the new industrial. That's all. It, like the next industrial, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah, no, retail is not dead. Absolutely not. We always like doing this. If you you got to talk to, to Ray's boss, right? Go back to a previous podcast with Colin Johnson about retail and he'll give you, I think we talked about 20 different examples why retail is not dead. Yeah, yeah. We won't jump into it now. This uh, after show is meant to be short. But yeah, if you wanted a solid hour, on uh, you know, believing in uh, the yeah, the, just the scroll back, life. just scroll back three or four months, and you'll see the Colin Johnson, <laughs> president of Altus, talking about why retail is not dead. We'll put a link in the show notes. Make it easy there for everybody go. if they want to check easy. that out. There you go. There you yeah. go. All right. Well, that concludes this after show. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. See you again next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.